You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. One night in April 1986, HBO viewers were settled in watching the movie The Falcon and the Snowman when suddenly the action was interrupted by four and a half minutes of a test pattern with a message from someone calling himself Captain Midnight. It said, Good evening, HBO, from Captain Midnight. $12.95 a month? No way. Showtime slash movie channel beware. It was America's first broadcast signal hijacking, but it wouldn't be the last. My name's Moxie, and this is your Brain on Facts. Broadcast signal intrusion, in short, is hijacking broadcast signals, be they radio, television, cable, or satellite. They're rare, but remarkable. Sometimes the signal jackers have to physically go to a transmitter to splice in their feed. A lot of the time, though, it's simply a matter of broadcasting a stronger signal than the station is. The equipment can be sophisticated, but it can also be made of scrap parts from things like ham radios. The motives vary widely from frustration to it's just a prank bro to we don't even know what. Heads up, there will be real clips in this episode and some of them are weird with a capital WTF. The earliest signal intrusion anywhere in the world that we know of happened back in 1966 in the Soviet city of Kaluga and almost triggered a nuclear war. If you know only one thing about world history in the second half of the 20th century, it would probably be the Cold War. Decades of itchy trigger finger tension between the US and the USSR. One night, the regular broadcast was suddenly interrupted by a seemingly official emergency warning that nuclear war had just broken out with the United States. Many viewers took the message seriously, running for cover and saying their final prayers. Thankfully, as would happen with Stanislav Petrov in 1983, when he correctly guessed that the early warning system was malfunctioning when it reported incoming U.S. bombers, you can hear all about that way back in episode 11 for want of a nail, government officials weren't as quick to react. A good thing, too. At the time, the USSR had over 7,000 nuclear weapons at their disposal. They'd already conducted 18 nuclear weapons tests that year alone. The US had nearly four times as many, but that's neither here nor there. It would only take 50 Hiroshima-sized bombs to plunge the world into nuclear winter. The Soviets weren't messing around. If one official had thought that another department had put out a legitimate message about the US attacking, that could have been the start of a very fast extinction-level event. Thankfully, the officials didn't panic, at least not officially. It would later be found that a teenager had hacked the station. His name was never released, possibly because of his age, and possibly to save him from retaliation from his neighbors. Or maybe it was a made-up cover story. Tinfoil hat. Nuclear war became a running theme for signal takeovers, and it wasn't confined to the Cold War. In June of 2007, a show called Panorama was part of the regular programming in the city of Prague in what is now Czechia. 
The show was meant as a sort of tourist program to display calm, scenic areas around the country, like a TV travel brochure. This particular episode started off as usual, with long, lingering shots of picturesque locales around Prague. Without warning, the screen was bathed in a blinding flash, and a mushroom cloud began to climb into the sky above the city. This would be disturbing enough to see on its own, but Panorama was usually aired live, meaning terrified viewers at home were left convinced they had just witnessed a nuclear strike on their hometown. The hijacking was seamless. There had been no static or breaks in the TV signal. It was so realistic, in fact, that even government officials and authorities believed the explosion was real. Luckily, it doesn't take many phone calls or glances out of a window to confirm that there is not, in fact, a mushroom cloud rising above a blast crater in the middle of the city. Authorities soon turned their energy to finding the perpetrators. It would eventually be discovered that a guerrilla artistic collective called Stohoven, which is known for their extravagant hoaxes and pranks, were the culprits. Apparently, this was a piece of performance art. Whether or not making hundreds of people think they're about to die constitutes art is a question better left for the philosophers. In a statement, Stohoven said, We are neither a terrorist organization nor a political group. Our aim is not to intimidate society or manipulate it, which is something we witness on a daily basis in both the real world and that created by the media. On June 17th, we attacked the space of TV broadcasting, distorting it, questioning its truthfulness and its credibility. The group added that they hoped their action would remind the media of their duty to bring out the truth. They must have gotten lucky with the judge presiding over their criminal trials, while they faced up to three years in prison, the judge dismissed the case. Back to the days of the USSR and its communist neighbor, Poland, who was referred to as a satellite state, not part of the USSR, but with a communist government cozying up to them. In 1985, a state-run Polish television station was hijacked by a political group calling themselves Solidarity. It was a broad political party that believed in pushing for workers' rights and social justice. At the time, the Polish government had dramatically increased the cost of food, while workers' wages remained the same. Solidarity was well known to the government. For two years, the government had imposed martial law in an order to eradicate the party, whom at the time was affiliated with by a third of working adults. Finally, in 1985, a standard news broadcast was being aired when text appeared on the screen. It read, Enough price increases, lies, and repressions. Solidarity to run. The logo for Solidarity also popped up on the screen before the broadcast cut out with a final message, It is our duty to boycott the election. After a second transmission a few days later, Four astronomy students at Poland's University of Tehran were found to be the hijackers and jailed for four months. What they accomplished took as much skill and cunning as it did courage. They had constructed a video transmitter that could synchronize itself with the official broadcast to produce an overlay that would be visible on every set within the transmission radius. This was no mean feat using 1980s technology in a country where electrical components were hard to come by. The police file on the event showed some of their equipment, 
including a Sinclair ZX Spectrum home computer that was presumably used to generate the graphics. Signal interruptions are by no means a phenomenon confined to the far side of the Iron Curtain. Jolly old England, where radio and TV are tightly controlled by the BBC, which is not technically the government, but it can be hard to tell the difference sometimes. The actual Office of Communications, or Ofcom, had been dealing with pirate radio stations, which broadcast pop music from boats in international waters since the 1960s. But one of the UK's best-known signal interruptions came from much farther away than 12 nautical miles offshore. It came from outer space, at least according to the person speaking. An extraterrestrial called Vrilon, whose attempt to talk to the people of Earth is usually referred to pretty boringly as the Southern Television Broadcast Interruption. On November 26, 1977, around 5.10 p.m. local time, Andrew Gardner was reading the news when the signal broke. Based on one man, one vote. But, he says, there are conditions. These include stopping the execution of all captured prisoners of war, allowing you to take negotiations, being arrested. In Australia, Mr. Kerry Packer's cricketers are still pleading about yesterday's high court decision, which didn't plan on them playing in test matches. Okay, that's significantly harder to understand in an audio-only format than it was when I watched it on YouTube with subtitles. Here's a portion of the transcript. This is the voice of Rilon, a representative of the Ashtar Galactic Command speaking to you. For many years, you have seen us as lights in the skies. We speak to you now in peace and wisdom as we have done to your brothers and sisters all over this, your planet Earth. We come to warn you of the destiny of your race and your world so that you may communicate to your fellow beings the course you must take to avoid the disaster which threatens your world and the beings on the worlds around you. This is an order that you may share in the Great Awakening as the planet passes into the new age of Aquarius. The new age can be a time of great peace and evolution for your race, but only if your rulers are made aware of the evil forces that can overshadow their judgments. Be still now and listen, for your chance may not come again. All your weapons of evil must be destroyed. That's only about a third of it. You can read the full transcript over at yourbrainonfacts.com signal, and find a link to a video of the interruption in the sources at the bottom of the page and in the show notes. So this powerful, wise being from the depths of outer space wants to talk to everyone on Earth, but only manages to take over an ITV licensee that would go belly up four years later. And he spoke with a British accent. But he did manage to hold the signal for six minutes, and that's not nothing. Southern Television broadcast from the Hannington UHF television transmitter, which was unusual for being one of the few main transmitters which broadcast an off-air signal received from another transmitter, rather than being fed directly by a landline. Consequently, it was open to this kind of signal intrusion, as even a relatively low-powered transmission close to the rebroadcast receiver could overwhelm the signal. Vrilon's identity has never been discovered. There's also a link on the website and the show notes to one of my favorite takeovers, this one in the more modern era 
the halcyon days of 2013. It happened during an episode of The Steve Wilkos Show, the fan-favorite security guard from Jerry Springer that was given his own talk show. Viewers of KRTV in Great Falls, Montana, were robbed of what I'm sure was a thoughtful discourse on teenage infidelity and a polygraph machine by the familiar klaxon of the emergency alert system. A blue bar with a white text crawl appeared on the screen. The text read that the affected counties were being given an official emergency notice. This is what viewers heard. Civil authorities in your area have reported that the bodies of the dead are rising from their graves and attacking the living. Follow the messages on screen that will be updated as information becomes available. Do not attempt to approach or apprehend these bodies as they are considered extremely dangerous. I repeat, civil authorities in your area have reported that the bodies of the dead are rising from their graves and attacking the living. Follow the messages on screen that will be updated as information becomes available. Do not attempt to approach or apprehend these bodies as they are considered extremely dangerous. This warning applies to all areas receiving this broadcast. Tune in to 9.20 a.m. to get updated information in the event that you are separated from your television or if electrical service is interrupted. Civil authorities in your area have reported that the bodies of the dead are rising from their graves and attacking the The message went out again that evening during The Bachelor. I'm sure viewers of both shows were heartbroken to have missed critical plot points in character development. The emergency alert reached such a wide audience that an official statement had to be given that the alert was false. Some people did call 911 about it, but there were no reports of any real panic. We didn't get any serious calls on it, Great Falls Police spokesman Bill Hunter said. It's been a real chuckle. The signal hijacking didn't start at KRTV, though. The hijackers had also sent their fake warning out on the PBS affiliate in Marquette, Michigan, during Barney and Friends, no less, and another in Portales, New Mexico, though no recordings of those seem to exist. So how did they do it? How did they hack the emergency alert system, a system you really don't want people messing with? It was embarrassingly easy. All the stations involved had left their emergency alert system encoder-slash-decoder devices on the factory presets. Basically, the password was password. The following day, the manufacturer, Monroe Electronics, sent out a statement reminding broadcasters to change the presets like it said in the instruction manual. That warning message may sound familiar to some listeners, specifically metalheads. Half of that message is used as the opening of the Anthrax song Fight Until You Can't, though it seems to have been recorded by hauntedhotsauce.com as something to play in a loop for atmosphere on Halloween. Naughty fun seems to be the name of the game for signal jacking in the U.S., and you don't get much naughtier than porn. Remember that 0.8 second of Janet Jackson's nipple during Super Bowl 38 that rocked our society to its core? And boy, do I wish I was exaggerating that more. Well, Super Bowl 43 was an order of magnitude more scandalous, at least if you were watching on Comcast in certain parts of Arizona, where an X-rated movie interrupted the game for nearly 37 seconds. Only those watching the standard definition feed, not the HD, got the surprise edition of Wild Cherries 5. But it was an event that understandably made a lot of people upset, 
The culprit was a 39-year-old employee of competing Cox Communication, who worked as a liaison with Comcast. The game was shown locally on KVOA. The station sent its signals, both standard and HD, to Cox Communications, which then sent them on to Comcast. Frank Gonzalez pled guilty to two counts of computer tampering and received three years probation and a $1,000 fine, payable to the Arizona Attorney General's Anti-Racketeering Fund. Comcast ended up offering a $10 credit to all of its 80,000 affected subscribers, whether they actually witnessed the scene or not. It wasn't immediately known how many subscribers took Comcast up on that offer. Officials with Comcast have said that they have since strengthened their security system. Many, if not most, of the people watching the Super Bowl are grown-ups. Not so much with the Disney Channel Bob the Builder ripoff Handy Manny. In 2007, at around 9.30 p.m. in Lincroft, New Jersey, the animated show of a handyman and his talking tools, <laughs> tools was interrupted by a clip from a hardcore porno from what must have felt like an eternity to parents scrambling to find the remote. We can only assume a lot of families had to have the talk that night. Comcast claimed that they had no idea how it happened. Our initial investigation suggests this was an isolated malicious act. We are conducting a thorough investigation to determine who was behind this. The digital Tyler Durden was never identified. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. One signal jacker whose identity we do know flipped the script on the porno prank by hacking the Playboy channel. On a Sunday night in 1987, Playboy's broadcast was sabotaged with a thoroughly off-brand text message. 
During Playboy's broadcast of the movie Three Daughters, the screen went black. Then white text appeared. Thus saith the Lord thy God, Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. These come from the Bible books of Exodus and Matthew, respectively. Playboy wasn't alone. The porno proselytizer also hit the channel American Ecstasy, spelled with three X's naturally. The signal jacker struck three times in all, twice on American Ecstasy and once on Playboy. Three years later, the hacker was revealed to be one Thomas Haney, a signal uplink engineer for the Christian Broadcast Network, a cable channel that produces only Christian programs. Investigators claimed Haney used CBN's equipment for the hacks, but the higher-ups at CBN claimed that was impossible because their equipment was incompatible with Playboys and American Ecstasies. Investigators insisted that, yeah, the equipment is compatible, and even provided evidence to prove that Playboy was hacked using CBN's equipment. Haney was given one felony and one misdemeanor charge for the Playboy hack, though the two charges for the American Ecstasy hacks were dropped because of a lack of evidence. One thing that is evident is how awesome the Brainiac community is. Segways. Still got them. Big thanks to everyone that engaged with us on social media this week at Facebook and Instagram.com slash YourBrainOnFacts and Twitter at BrainOnFactsPod, and our loyal band of signal boosters, Eric, Paul, Richard, my friends from the Story of Your and Yours, Bunny Trails, Varmints, and Odd Dad Out podcast. And I'm absolutely pickled tink to tell you about two more members at Patreon.com slash YourBrainOnFacts. Shanti, Christina, and our other supporters got a bonus episode about the most popular urban legend, cryptid, or scary story from the state in which they live. Right now, the Patreon is at the goal level, where a portion of the pledges go to support creatives who give resources for free to podcasters, such as Kevin McLeod, whose music I've been using since day one. With 18 more dollars coming in every month, we'll be at the goal level where a portion will go to a charity selected by the patrons. So you get a lot of bang for that buck in helping to support your brain on facts. And now for the most prized jewel in the signal intrusion crown, the Max Hedrum incident. For the benefit of several listeners, Max Hedrum was a character created to intro music videos before becoming a pop culture icon with a TV show and commercial deals, the biggest being for New Coke. You can Google New Coke on your own, otherwise I'll go into an hour-long tangent on it. Max Hedrum was billed as the first fully CGI TV host, which would not have been practical, affordable, or arguably possible when he debuted in 1987. Instead, he was character actor Matt Frewer in plasticky makeup, lit with a single, high-contrast light, chroma-keyed onto a background of spinning neon stripes. Glitches and ticks were added in post. It's one of those things that kind of sounds lame when you say it out loud, but was incredibly cool at the time. On November 22, 1987, WGN Chicago Channel 9 sportscaster Dan Roan was covering the highlights of the Bears' victory over the Lions. At 9.14, Roan disappeared from the screen, and the image went black for 15 seconds. Then a figure appeared, 
wearing a full-head Max Headroom rubber Halloween mask with sunglasses. It was oversized for his body, making the whole situation that much creepier. A stripy silver background, a piece of corrugated aluminum, turned back and forth behind him. There was no audio except for a loud buzzing as the figure in the mask bobbed around. After 30 seconds of startling strangeness, signal engineers switched the frequency on the studio link to another transmitter. Dan Roan reappeared. Well, if you're wondering what's happened, he said, so am I. The news finished without further incident. Studio engineers assumed that the hijack was an inside job and immediately began searching the building for the masked intruder, but no one could be found who wasn't supposed to be there. Two hours later, Discount Max Headroom was back, this time on WTTW Channel 11, during the Doctor Who episode titled The Horror of Fang Rock. A quick nod to my super brainiac Adam Baum, who pointed out to me that I've been saying entitled, which doesn't mean is the title of. The correct word to use when you're talking about a title is just titled. The video cut out, replaced with scan lines like you used to see at the beginning of a VHS tape. Then Max reappeared. The twisting background and bobbing movements were the same, but this time there was audio, though we do seem to drop into the middle of whatever Max is saying. That does it, the figure says in a digitally distorted voice. He's a freaking nerd. And then he laughs. The creeps just keep on coming. Max seems to have a vendetta against WGN in general. He claims to have made a giant masterpiece of all the greatest world's newspaper nerds, referring to WGN's acronym, and sports anchor Chuck Swirsky in particular, mentioning Swirsky by name repeatedly. Did he have a professional grudge? Was he about to deliver a manifesto of some kind? And why do we never hear about good manifestos? Why did this man, and at least two accomplices, go to all this trouble? Your guess is as good as anyone else's. If there was symbolism to what Max said and did, he's the only one who got it. He held up a can of Pepsi, dropped the Coca-Cola slogan, Catch the Wave, and dropped the can like a battle rapper drops the mic. Max moves off screen, then came back with something on his middle finger, a marital aid, as the news would refer to it later, for adding length to one's member. Max flips off the camera while singing lyrics to I Know I'm Losing You by The Temptations. He also sang the theme song to Clutch Cargo, a 60s cartoon show that superimposed the voice actors' mouths on the cartoon faces, presumably to save time and money on animation. Max quotes phrases from TV shows, screamed nonsense, and then began to moan. The camera cut, and now the mask is being held right in front of it, with the marital aid stuck through the mouth slit. Max then stuck his naked butt into frame, and a woman dressed in some kind of costume. Some people think it looks like Annie Oakley, others think it's a French maid outfit. Appeared and spanked him rather dispassionately with a fly swatter. This utter madness went on for 82 bizarre seconds before engineers were able to take it down. What took so long? Were the hackers that technically savvy? No, there was just no one on duty at the transmitter tower. Reactions from Chicagoans ranged from amusement to confusion to one man who wanted to punch out his TV. Many people who were taping Doctor Who that night ended up preserving the Max Hedrum incident for posterity. Hold up, you say. If there were recordings, 
Why didn't Moxie play a clip? Because it sounded like this. See, the government was not pleased. The FCC, the agency that regulates the airwaves, dedicated all of their efforts to finding the mysterious masked figure, even offering a reward to anyone with information. I'd like to inform anybody involved in this kind of thing that there's a maximum penalty of $100,000, one year in jail, or both, Phil Bradford, an FCC spokesman, told a reporter. WTTW spokesman Anders Joachim warned, It is a very serious matter because illegal interference of a broadcast system is a violation of federal law. Eventually, the FCC worked out how the hacker had done it. With parts as underwhelming as scavenged electronics, a van, and a direct TV-sized dish, all he, she, or they had to do was get between the studio and the transmitter tower, say on a rooftop parking deck, and beam away. Leads were thin on the ground, though rumors flew then and for years to come. Even though the statute of limitations has been up for decades, no one has stepped forward to take credit for the most bizarre two minutes of TV ever aired. And I'm saying that as someone who used to watch liquid television religiously. You might be thinking, these signal interruptions were on old-school analog equipment. The average schmuck couldn't do that these days. Au contraire. In the age of digital transmissions and encryptions, signal intrusion has become more difficult, but they still happen. In September of 1998, people in Southern California watching Everybody Loves Raymond were suddenly treated to a handsome man in his 30s with a profound obsession for Listerine mouthwash. He lovingly cradles a bottle of it in his hand and proceeds to relentlessly expound on the virtues of the product, as if the whole thing was a mouthwash infomercial. This extremely odd video went out to millions of puzzled viewers. It wasn't a commercial. In fact, Listerine insisted they had nothing to do with it. The source of the signal could not be located, and the oral hygiene aficionado joined the ranks of mysterious signal jackers. FCC spokesman Grant Yarbrough would say of the whole head-scratching scenario, Why this individual should be so obsessed with oral hygiene as to demand that several million bottles of Listerine be simultaneously purchased is baffling, to say the least. This gentleman seems single-mindedly, almost obsessively determined to convince as many people as possible that using Listerine is somehow absolutely essential. There was a signal jacking as recently as last year. From 6am to 7.39am one Thursday morning, viewers weren't able to get any useful information from the Weather Channel. Whatever was supposed to be broadcast by whomever interrupted the signal wasn't. The channel was just out of commission. The network had to switch to a taped program instead of its morning show AMHQ. In a Twitter post, the company explained that it experienced issues due to a malicious software attack, and that it was only able to restore live broadcasts through backup mechanisms. While the network didn't elaborate on the breach, Fed sold the Wall Street Journal that it was a ransomware attack, meaning someone was trying to extort money from the company by holding the system hostage. Ransomware attacks have become increasingly common, with hackers attacking and extorting huge corporations like FedEx and even city governments like that of Atlanta. 
Investigators later found that the ransomware used to attack the Georgia State Capitol was also used to extort hospitals, healthcare companies, and state agencies. The Weather Channel ransomers, like so many others on our list, were never caught. And that's where we run out of ideas, at least for today. But back to Captain Midnight. Back in the early 1980s, satellite dish owners were responsible for servicing their own equipment, but had access to any satellite broadcast programming, including that of cable providers. When HBO became the first network to scramble its signal, it offers subscriptions to home dish owners with a descrambler at a cost of $12.95 per month, about $28 now, which was equal to or higher than what cable subscribers were paying. As other channels scrambled their feeds, satellite dish sales and service companies, like the one owned by Floridian John McDougall, took a hit as people left satellite for cable. McDougall had had to take a second job as the control master of a satellite signal hub, which gave him the means to point a dish at the HBO satellite and overwhelm their signal. He then stupidly began discussing the event with anyone who would listen. McDougall was charged with transmitting without a radio license, pled guilty, and was given a $5,000 fine and a year's probation. Remember, you can always find the full script and all of the research sources at yourbrainonfacts.com. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend, the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.